If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1845, two ships, crewed by 129 men, sailed into the Canadian Arctic and never returned. What happened to the Franklin Expedition has proven one of history's most compelling mysteries. And most recently, it's inspired the chilling TV drama The Terror, which is currently airing on BBC iPlayer and previously aired on AMC in the US. I'm sure that many of you have been watching this from the edge of your seats. So to find out more about the real mystery of what happened on the ice, I spoke to the naval historian Andrew Lambert, who revealed a grim tale of disease, desperation and even cannibalism. So thanks very much for joining me. Um, many of the listeners, I think, will have watched The Terror, which is showing on BBC iPlayer at the moment, but many of them will not. So what we're going to try and do in this conversation is focus on the real history um, that is behind the series rather than the series itself. So we'll try and keep any spoilers to a minimum. And the only his spoilers we'll give will be of a historical nature. And they're 150 years old, so I think we can get away with that. So, of course, the series is inspired by the Franklin Expedition, which set off in 1845 and went missing in the Canadian Arctic. And I think it's fair to say that from that point, the series goes off into imaginative fictional territory. 
But at the heart of it, of course, there is this real solid true story. So what do you think it is about the Franklin Expedition that a TV writer would look at and think, right, this, this would make a really terrifying TV series? The great attraction of the Franklin Expedition for any creative writer uh, and I've I've been there. I've I've worked through this story. Um, I've walked up a lot of this ground. Is that we do not know. We s- still do not know what caused the disaster. We don't know how the expedition came to get stuck. We don't know what happened precisely to all of the men. We don't know where the last man fell. We do know that nobody got out of there alive. And we have a document with about 200 words on it, which gives us the record of the 18 months leading up to the men abandoning their ships. But it doesn't give any of the information that we really need. It tells us men had died, but it doesn't tell us what of. It tells us that they were going to march south to a particular destination, but that destination was beyond their capacity to reach. So it's an open-ended story. And as a historian, we're used to finding what happens and being able to explain everything. And I think a lot of writers of history have been unsettled by that. They're very nervous about moving into territory that is normally occupied by more creative writers. But I think that that's the greatness of the Franklin story. We don't know. And it gives us a space in which we can begin to look at the evidence. We can push the evidence quite hard. We can speculate. And everybody who has thought about this expedition from the moment it was deemed to be missing has had a theory about what happened. And there are many of them. And this series is an opportunity to explore some of those theories and to put several of them together perhaps it's it's a creative response to a catastrophe that lives on in the history of the arctic in in the names of arctic locations and it's a, a disaster that resonates with a particular victorian sensibility about the sanctity of the human body So you mentioned that there's loads of theories about what happened to the Franklin Expedition, and I think we'll delve into some of those later. But just to start us off with what we do know about the Franklin Expedition for sure. So there were two ships involved, Erebus and Terra, and 129 men. What else do we know about the progress that they made before everything went dark? The key to understanding the Franklin Expedition is to go back to the original instructions that Franklin was given. And to see this expedition not as a one-off, but as the culmination of a 30-year campaign by the British state, by the British scientific establishment, to understand the Earth's terrestrial magnetic properties, which is a critical element in global oceanic navigation. And the British state as the world's premier maritime nation and the Royal Navy as the dominant force on that ocean had a massive interest in understanding the impact of magnetic variation on navigation. This expedition is not trying to get through to the other side. It is not a big boys geography project. It's a science project. I think think that's a common misconception that they were trying to find a passage through. 
Well, what what happened was that the expedition was described for public purposes as an expedition to complete the Northwest Passage, because that was just about the only thing that the great mass of newspaper readers would have recognised. But the ultimate object is to reach the magnetic North Pole and to conduct a series of magnetic observations lasting at least nine months, possibly longer, In which is why two big ships had to be sent with a lot of officers on board, because this was work for officers and the scientific men on board, including the medical staff. And this would have been part of a global magnetic research project. This is the largest science project of the 19th century. At the same time, all around the world, magnetic observation stations are being set up and are conducting the same observations at the precise same times using the same instruments and measuring the same data. They are going to make a geomagnetic map of the entire Earth to understand its magnetic properties and to see if those magnetic properties can be used as a form of navigation instrument. Is this Victorian GPS? So Franklin sets off with two ships, 129 ultimately men, and all of his officers are trained magnetic observers. The drama opens in terms of the ships at the very point when they are very close to magnetic north, and this is established uh, I think very, very early on in the program, that is where the ships got stuck. They could walk to magnetic north from where the ships were, were ultimately located for much of the drama. It's worth remembering those two ships have particularly sinister names. I wanted to ask you about this because I think a lot of people will watch the show and think, why on earth would you call an exploratory ship HMS Terror? The answer is that both of the ships were originally built as bombardment platforms carrying heavy mortars firing exploding shell. And the Royal Navy always named them after volcanoes uh, or sinister and unpleasant places. And so Terra was a logical member of that group. Uh, There were others named after volcanoes. Uh, Erebus, of course, in Greek mythology, is the dark place at the gates of hell. So that's not much better, really, is it? If if you're classically educated, it's probably worse. I, I wanted to ask you actually about life on board, because the depiction of it in, in the TV series, to begin with at least, is, is very hierarchical and very orderly. Um, is that an accurate portrayal of life on, on these kinds of ships? I was very struck by both the way the ships and, and shipboard activity were represented. Yes, it is a formal hierarchical structure, And that is essential to the conduct of naval operations when you're asking men to go into into harm's way, into battle, and in places like the Arctic where you're asking men to go into harm's way. And if that structure breaks down and that's something that can be explored in this story, we don't know this from the factual record. Did the structure of of the Navy break down at some point on the expedition was the cause of failure actually the collapse of this hierarchical society and remember that many of those men on that expedition several of the officers and some of the ice masters and one or two of the crew had been to the arctic before so some of these men had a great understanding of this and they'd lived through multi-year expeditions overwintering in the arctic So they knew that part of the success of this would be keeping all of the men engaged 
but maintaining control, a delicate balance between authority uh, and a degree of, of permissiveness, which would allow the men to relax when they were not on duty. Um, you mentioned the overwintering. So that was a that was a standard part of these kind of uh, expeditions, was it? How would the crew survive that almost? I think we've, we've been through lockdown now and the thought of being on a, a ship in the middle of nowhere for six months or whatever it might be is absolutely kind of incomprehensible to me. The first thing to say is, of course, that sailors were very used to being cooped up in small wooden boxes for long periods because if you're sailing the oceans, you can't get off the ship. Uh, you know, So you're, they're already stuck on the ship. Now they're stuck on the ship in the middle of a permanent darkness in seriously sub-zero temperatures, and the only thing that's going to keep them alive is working together. So... One of the things the series does, I think, emphasize is the importance of that hierarchy, the importance of experience among the senior officers and, and, and uh, the ice masters in making sure that everybody is doing what they need to do to keep everything ticking over nicely through the winter. So the ships are banked up with ice to keep them insulated. Uh, the upper decks have covers over them. Uh, all kinds of measures. And inside the ship, opportunities for the men to forget about their circumstances. So a lot of men would have learned to read and write on this voyage because they had the time to sit down and there were officers who could, could do that for them. Men would have learned to read and write and they would have been writing letters, which they would then have passed on when they reached a, a delivery point. So we know that the ship would have been packed full of books. They would have carried out amateur theatricals. Uh, they would have celebrated all of the festive occasions. So Christmas would have been an obvious one at the turning of the year. And there's a serious concern to make sure that everybody is as happy as they can be and to be ready for individuals not to be able to deal with those circumstances. And again, that combination of, of understanding and discipline. The Navy's discipline is not army-style discipline. It's not I say, you do. It's very much I need to understand how the men are getting on. In the Royal Navy for the last 300 years, junior officers are responsible for the well-being of their men. And that includes their mental health. Uh, because the quickest way to break a crew down is for mental health problems to to surface. Junior officers who don't look after their men don't get promoted. So it's it's mutual. I'm the officer, you're the man, but I am responsible for you. And I know that if I don't do my duty, I can't rely on you to do yours. So it's a, it's a two-way process. And you know, you you can see that is carried across into the into the drama. That sense that this is a team, and that the dynamics of the team are really important. So, of course, two of the key figures in this story are the ship's captain himself, Sir John Franklin, and his second in command, um, Francis Crozier. What do we know about them? Franklin and Crozier are both experienced Arctic veterans, and there is a a critical linking character in all of this, and he does feature in the drama, James Clark Ross. Ross is the man who found Magnetic North. He was the commander of the Antarctic expedition that Franklin supported as governor of Tasmania. Crozier, on that expedition, commanded HMS Terror, 
exactly the same ship that he commands on the Franklin expedition. So these three men are very close. They are part of the Navy's Arctic scientific professional community. They are elite members of this group. Franklin's famous for going overland. Uh, Ross is famous for finding Magnetic North and for his maritime feats. But Franklin gets the job because Ross has come back from the Antarctic in a, in a really shattered condition physically and mentally, and he's not capable of, of picking that job up. Uh, the thought was that he would simply come back and go up to the Arctic with Crozier as second in command still. He can't do that. He turns the job down. He's physically unfit. So Franklin gets the job. And there are differences between Crozier and Franklin. And with Ross missing from the story, uh, those differences are very much that Crozier thinks Ross is the right man for the job and not Franklin. Crozier has more experience of ice navigation than Franklin, and he's captaining his own ship. You know, he's, he's second in command, but he's also the captain of HMS Terror. Uh, Franklin is captain of Erebus and overall commander as the senior officer. So the idea there might have been some tensions between them, I think, is, is plausible. We know that Crozier didn't set off in the most positive of minds. Uh, he'd proposed to, Frank, to Franklin's niece, Sophia Craycroft, uh, on two occasions and had been re rejected. Uh, his prospects were not good enough. And that may well have soured relations between the two men. So Crozier goes to the Arctic, I think exhausted by the Antarctic expedition, which hadn't done him much good either um, in physical terms, and also demoralized by this. And a sense where Franklin's evangelical Christianity may have grated with Crozier, who doesn't seem to have been quite so convinced of of the, the faith-based outcome. So there are differences between them. Uh, one of them is an Irishman and an Englishman. Uh, they have very different career trajectories. Franklin is a bit older. He's a, he's a, you know, Franklin is a decorated combat veteran. He fought at Copenhagen and Trafalgar uh, and even at the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, he's been through the mill. He's commanded regular warships on normal duty in peacetime as well. And he's been a colonial governor. So he is a very significant figure. Uh, and Crozier is an important but subordinate member of the Navy's Arctic uh, exploring group. So they're not really at the same level. Franklin is that bit older. And he's a great man-manager. Uh, his crews always loved him. Uh, he had a, an ability to, to draw the crew after him uh, without using corporal punishment, which he abhorred. So Franklin didn't believe in corporal punishment, whereas Crozier did. So they, they're different. And over time, those differences in a confined space can be problematic. There is no evidence of that in the record that we have because we don't have Franklin's private letters home after he entered the Arctic. Uh, all the ones we have, everybody's getting along well. So there isn't a letter from Franklin saying, I, I'm not getting on with Crozier, he's being awkward. Or from Crozier saying, you know, I can't. So we, we don't know if that relationship broke down, but that is a point of tension. And of course, it was left to Crozier to make the big decision about what they did when the ships were stuck and they weren't getting out. So ultimately, the burden is passed by Franklin. Without going into too many specifics, there's a very ominous vibe that's um, set forward from the beginning of the terror. And we're presented with a lot of different threats 
to the men's survival. What were some of the threats that were faced by real exploratory missions like the Franklin Expedition? A large part of the confusion that follows the loss of the expedition is that previous Arctic exploration had led to very few casualties. Death rates on Arctic voyages were lower than normal service. Was that because because normal service would have involved conflict with other, no. other people? No, it was because no. the officers and crew and everybody else was very well aware of the risks they were running and took very high levels of precaution. So it was a matter of pride for an exploring expedition to come back with all of its people. And very, very few men died on those expeditions right the way down to the Franklin expedition. So when when they set off and people expected them to return, of course they did. All the other ones had returned. Um, One that was lost for three years returned. The men had to abandon their ship, uh, but they they survived. So there were ample examples of well-organized crews surviving overwintering once, twice, three times. So the the level of casualty was low. The main killer in the Arctic uh, before this was scurvy, and this followed. This would follow the breakdown of their lemon juice ration because lemon juice we know is very rich in vitamin C. But if you freeze it and thaw it and freeze it and thaw it a few times, it destroys the vitamin C. So you don't get the that antiscorbutic effect. That was a key problem. Uh, we find occasionally men dying of other complaints they brought with them. And we know that on the Franklin expedition, three men died over the first winter of tuberculosis. Mm. Now, tuberculosis is a major killer in the 19th century, respiratory lung disease leading to the breakdown of lung tissue. These three men were in the advanced stages of tuberculosis when they died. Tuberculosis is spread through the air And these three men died in the winter on ships that were closed in and being being heated and were occupied by crews of 60 in quite confined quarters. This is perfect conditions to spread a respiratory complaint. So everybody on both ships had been exposed to an environment in which men had died of tuberculosis. We know this because these three men were exhumed in the 1980s and given an autopsy because they'd been buried in the permafrost. Uh, they had literally no lung tissue left. Mm-hmm. So it's highly likely that other men on the Franklin expedition could have died of tuberculosis. Because they'd been overwintering more t- twice, it's possible their vitamin C, their, the lemon juice they were relying on to deal with, with scurvy, had also lost some of its power. And they would have desperately needed to get their hands on some fresh food. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Our curiosity is not piqued by closure, it's piqued by an open-ended issue. And the Franklin Expedition is the great unknown of the history of exploration. And I'd rather it remained like that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. If we're looking at the timeline of the expedition, what are the last things that we can say for certain? We know that they sailed into the Arctic in the first year and they reached Beachy Island uh, at the end on Lancaster Sound and that they overwintered there. They buried three men there. And in the following summer, they entered what was originally thought to be Peel Sound, a dead-end channel heading south directly towards Magnetic North. This had been located by James Clark Ross in the 1830s, but he was overlanding on that expedition, so he didn't know that it was actually an open navigation and that was discovered by the Franklin expedition. Franklin reaches the end of that passage and is then stuck in the confluence of the, the of Peel Strait and the McClintock Channel, which is where the, the multi-year thick pack ice collides with uh, the northern end of King William Island. And so does it seem like that that was their undoing, the fact that they got stuck in ice that rather than just... Um, freezing them in for one winter and then thawing, never thawed. So the Arctic weather conditions even now are very variable. So we're we're all being told that the Arctic ice is retreating. Yes, it is, but it's not retreating in any steady pattern. That it ebbs and flows. So some years are much worse than others. So in 1847, the ice conditions were relatively benign. And because the ships had been fitted with steam engines, they were able to navigate due south in a narrow passage against a, a southerly wind, which was breaking up the ice. So the south wind raised the, the local temperature and allowed them to navigate south until they reached the McClintock Channel, where the ice was much thicker, and that's where they got stuck. I know it's always difficult in these situations to cast blame, and maybe that's not the right approach, but is that bad decision-making or is it bad luck? No, they, the steam engines allowed them to complete their mission. 
what we have to understand is that the Franklin expedition reached its target, Magnetic North, and was there for more than long enough to conduct all of the scientific observations that were necessary. And those observations would have been recorded, and had the ships survived, they would have been brought back and become part of this global project, which was being run out of the United Kingdom. This is a, a British-centered project, and they are a key part of it. The two ships had just come back from Antarctica, where they'd located Magnetic South, and they'd been based in Hobart in Tasmania, where John Franklin was the governor. And Franklin and James Clark Ross and Francis Crozier had all been conducting magnetic observations in a magnetic research station in Hobart that Franklin had built. And it was called Ross Bank after his friend, James Clark Ross. So there's a, a terrible synergy here between these two ships, these three men. And the only man who understands where Franklin is and gets closest to finding him in the 1840s is Ross. Ross knows what Franklin is doing. He knows where he's going. And to his, to his lasting grief, he's unable to get there physically. His sledge party is close, but they're their lemon juice has gone and the men are starting to suffer really badly. Ross went on another day's travel on his own, hoping that he could find Franklin, uh, but he was eventually forced to come back and he was never the same man again. His health was broken. What are some of the theories about what happened after that? So once they're stuck in the ice, we have to understand the next thing we have is a piece of paper an admiralty form printed in many languages, including Inuktitut, uh, which invites people to send information that they found this paper to the admiralty in London. And on it, Lieutenant Graham Gore wrote in 1847 an account of what had ha what had been happening, and it was all very positive and upbeat. Everything was going along pretty well. They were in the ice, but they were expecting to get out the following year. Uh, then... Crozier and James Fitzjames write on it the following year and say that Franklin had died in 1847, later in the year, and that others had died, primarily officers rather than men, which is most unusual, and almost as an afterthought that they were marching south. So this, this paper was, was where? It was in a cairn at Point Victory, uh, which is a cairn that was built by uh, James Clark Ross on his first expedition. And this was a, an, an Arctic post box. These cairns are post boxes. You deposit things in them in little copper tubes. And this was discovered in 1859. So we have this paper, and it's you know that is the whole history of the Franklin expedition uh, from the point they entered the Arctic, and it's 260-odd words. So they didn't give any idea about why Franklin and the other officers had died and they didn't give any idea about why they were marching south. No, so we so this opens the field to all kinds of speculation. So the first theory was that some an unscrupulous manufacturer of canned provisions had scrimped on the quality of the food and particularly had used too much lead in soldering up the tins and that lead poisoning uh, had caused the men to die. There's a fundamental problem with this. Lead poisoning isn't lethal. It makes people mentally unstable, uh, but the, the human body will not ingest and process enough lead to kill itself. The, the body is far too sensible for that. So this will be excreted. 
So lead poisoning did not kill the men. It might have warped their judgment, but it certainly didn't kill them. The next one is scurvy, which is an obvious threat, and they were running out of lime juice. So these men would have been scorbutic. Uh, They would have been suffering from the classic scurvy symptoms, losing their hair, losing their teeth, uh, old wounds reopening. And that's a particular problem for maritime veterans, many of whom would have suffered serious injuries. We know that James Fitzjames, for example, had been shot right through one of his arms and into his chest. So he, he was carrying some serious scar tissue, and which would open. And your wounds 10 years old would, would start to bleed again. And there's no way of curing this apart from getting some vitamin C. And in the Arctic, the best source is seal meat. Seal blubber is packed with vitamin C. The problem is where the ships were stuck, there is nothing living. It's a desolate place. Um, I've traveled up there with, with local Inuit, and they say, look, we never come up here. There's nothing here. There are no seals. There are no bears. There's just nothing. It's, it's dead ground. It's the worst place to get stuck. You haven't mentioned there like a threat of food running out. Would that not have been an issue? Because it's it's quite mind-boggling to me that they could have enough provisions on a ship to last three years, would it have been? They had the ships left England uh, with enough provisions for three years, canned provisions, salted meats, um, and all the other supporting provisions. And before they sailed into the Arctic, they loaded more stores from their store ship and they shot and salted down large numbers of seabirds. And all the while they were in open water, they fished as well. So they, whenever they could, they ate fresh food to keep the, the stores And these stores historically had lasted through not just years, but decades. One expedition found 10-year-old cases of salt meat, and it was perfectly eatable. So that doesn't seem like it would have been a problem. It was not starvation, um, definitely. Uh, I'm sure when we get to the bottom of the two ships that have been found, there will be uh, provisions of some sorts on them. And what are some of the other ideas about why they might have set off south? The assumption that that Arctic experts made was that they must have been stuck in multi-year ice and perhaps their ships had been damaged or possibly even sunk by ice pressure and that this forced them to abandon ship. But as we know, that isn't the case. Those two ships were still afloat when the men abandoned, well, stuck in the ice when the men abandoned them. I think Erebus had been fatally damaged because if you look at the the images of Erebus we have, the stern of the ship is very badly broken. And once the ice melted, she would have sunk. So I think she drifted south in the ice and then sank. But Terra was perfectly seaworthy and was navigated south after. It was most of the crew abandoned. So not the loss of the ship. And the next theory has to be that there's some kind of hostile interaction with local people. There's no merit in that. There are no Inuit in that part of the Arctic. There's nothing there for them to eat, and so they don't go there. Uh, Mm. King William Island has places where you can hunt and places where you can't, and up there there's nothing. So it's highly unlikely they met any Inuit. We have eyewitness testimony from Inuit people meeting some survivors on the south of the island at the end of their march about 600 miles from the ships. But that's a wholly different situation. And that, curiously enough, is where the Inuit people live on the island to this day. 
so so one of the more grisly aspects of this of this case which i think is probably also why people find it so fascinating is the uh, the question of whether um the crew at points resorted to cannibalism what evidence is there of that in the mid 19th century cannibalism is the last taboo um god made the bodies you shouldn't eat the bodies that god made um uh, this is absolutely the the final outrage but we know from the history of Arctic navigation that cannibalism did occur. Um, there are cases of Franklin's first expedition uh, 30 years earlier, significant levels of cannibalism, uh, mostly of, of native and Canadian personnel. But one British officer was shot by one of the cannibals and, and who was intending to eat him uh, before he too was shot by another officer. So cannibalism was a fact. And this is one of the things that made Franklin so famous, the frisson of this dangerous expedition, which they did survive, but many of the lesser characters on the expedition ended up being cannibalized. So we know definitely that at least 50 human bodies were cannibalized in the course of this expedition. There's large survival of bone material uh, from the expedition's route march which is along the coast heading due south from the abandoned site and then round into the strait between King William Island and the mainland. There are two camps in Erebus and Terror Bay each, and the Terror Bay camp is a significant site of large-scale systematic cannibalism. Uh, the evidence is both finding bones, which have been marked by steel instruments at the point where you would butcher a carcass, there's clearly the people who are doing this know what they're doing. Sailors know how to butcher a, a carcass because that's one of the ways that they, they feed. So the meat has been stripped off human remains. And we find groups of bones, not skeletons, but a whole pile of skulls, a whole pile of leg bones. So the, the body has been disarticulated and it's been processed. The Inuit reported that when they met the last struggling survivors, they were carrying human legs with the sea boots on. That This was their portable food supply. So there is ample evidence. These men on the, ex on the march ran out of food. And having looked at what they were able to carry in those sledges, these are wooden sledges with boats on because they've got to cross at open water to get to the mainland and to navigate the river down to the Hudson's Bay post, they couldn't carry enough stores to make half the distance that they set out to cover because the boats were heavy, the stores were heavy, the men were weak. Uh, having been on a ship for over two years, they were not physically fit, certainly not for overland marching. So they would have needed a lot of men to pull the sledges and they couldn't carry more food, I've estimated, than about five or 600 miles worth of marching. They were going to run out. And I don't think the two officers who were in command at that point, uh, Francis Crozier and James Fitzjames, had any expectation of getting out alive. I think they were determined to keep the expedition together and to maintain order for as long as possible in case something turned up. And I, and I guess um, with the evidence, obviously, of cannibalism, what that doesn't give you is any evidence of how those people died before they were eaten. 
Well, there's, there's a really straightforward issue here. A significant part of the value of eating a carcass of any animal uh, is to, to drain it of blood. There's a massive amount of calorific value in the blood, and you're not going to get that from a dead body. And secondly, uh, when you're in the high Arctic, uh, within a few hours, it's going to be frozen solid. And in order to eat it with your scorbutic mouth, which has got few wobbly teeth in it, you're going to need to heat it up. You haven't got any wood. How are you going to, how are you going to cook your food? So consuming fresh has a, has a terrible grim logic to it. You know, it is going to be much, much easier to process this and much more valuable to you if you can do it fresh. That, that is, I think, a you know, sensible analysis. There isn't hard evidence of that because knife marks on bones don't tell you whether the individual was, was fresh or frozen at the time. But the, under these circumstances, that's the most efficient way of doing that. And I don't think the people on the expedition were unaware of that. So of all these kind of grim possibilities that we have in front of us, what theory do you find personally the most convincing about what happened? I think it's a complex disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have tuberculosis as a serious issue. Uh, I think that's the one that hasn't been given adequate attention, that all of these men had been exposed to this a highly aggressive strain of tuberculosis, which had come out of London and had killed three young fit men very, very quickly and was in a perfect situation to spread rapidly. Nobody on board the ship knew how tuberculosis spread. So they were treating these men up close and personal, where today we, of course, would find ways of of making sure that they weren't able to breathe on everybody else. Scurvy, by the time they abandoned ship, would have been an issue but not a lethal one. It would have been debilitating. There has been an argument that there was botulism, that the canned food was was imperfect and had deteriorated. Uh, there's little evidence for that. Um, there are native strains of botulism in the Arctic, but again, it's not obvious how they would have come into contact with that, and there is no hard evidence for that. So lead poisoning may have affected their judgment, but not killed them. But a combination of lead poisoning, scurvy, tuberculosis means that your crew are weakened. You've got a lot of men who can't march over land, who can't pull the sledges, who are in a, in a poor condition. And so we see as they set off, they don't get very far before some of the men stay behind. They simply can't go on. And you get a sense that the expedition is going to be those that are fit enough and strong enough to carry on, pressing on, and they're leaving the others behind because there is no other way. And those men who are left behind are going to run out of food. And the main cannibal site is in Terra Bay, which is a camp. It seems from the Inuit testimony that a large number of men had been left there because they couldn't carry on in a tented camp, and they then ran out of food. My main question is, if they had enough food on the ship, but they couldn't transport it because it was too heavy, why did they leave the ship? So the ships were going nowhere very slowly. and Nobody would have known where the ships were. James Clark Ross understood where they were, but that's he was unique in that all the other search expeditions went to the whole of the rest of the Arctic. Most of the Arctic chart was made looking for Franklin. And a lot of it is a very long way from any of the action 
that's covered in this drama. They didn't stay on the ships because they were going to run out of food eventually, and it was better to go while they had enough fit and strong men to carry on and to, to try and make that distance and hopefully to find some kind of relief. Mm-hmm. So I think Crozier and Fitzjames, who are leading the Overland Party, maintain order and maintain a positive vision by looking at the possibility of, of finding help and setting a narrative which is about going south to the Hudson's Bay Company post. But even if they'd got there, there wasn't much the post could have done to rescue the men they'd had to leave behind. So it would, it's a very difficult uh, issue. And of course, for our naval officers, abandoning your ship is a serious issue. Uh, what it, under whatever circumstances you lose your ship, you face a court-martial. You have to account for this. So they would have carried the records of the expedition with them to explain why they'd abandoned the ships. Those records are almost certainly lost. It's, I think it's a great mystery which will never fully be resolved. We now know that the ship Terror was sailed along the coast of King William Island further south and ended up in a bay which, curious enough, was named Terror, where the main cannibal activity took place. And that may have extended the the period in which that camp was viable by consuming the stores from the ship. Uh, Erebus probably went south in a block of ice and and hit the Canadian shore and the ice melted there, which is where she sank. Uh, But certainly it looks like terror was navigated, that there were men on board. Well, just talking about whether or not this case will ever be resolved, I think it's worth just making it clear in case people don't know at this point that recently the ships were both found. So Erebus was only found in 2014 and Terra in 2016. Has that revealed anything yet? And do you think that it might do on further investigation? Finding the two ships is an astonishing feat for archaeologists, Um, essentially two different teams, both Canadian working for the same agenda and listening to the testimony of Inuit people, the oral history of, of the Inuit, has a lot to say about this expedition. And Erebus was found pretty much where the Inuit said they would find her a long time ago. What it's done is it's put the ships on the map. We know that they were at a point where they were abandoned, and we know where they ended up. And it's pretty obvious how they got to those two places. Uh, we haven't yet found what's inside and being able to examine that. And the things we need are very fragile, so it's paper records. The ships are tremendous artefacts, but they don't tell the story. We need the paper record. We need the logbooks. We need the medical journals. We need the surgeon saying this man has died of this and that this officer has this complaint. Uh, We need the daily record saying today it was minus 33 and something broke. And, you know, we need much more information. And if... The records have survived. We may solve this mystery. But for now, I think it's a, it's a great open-ended question. And I think it's perfect material for a drama to explore the possibilities and to get people thinking, to use their creative processes, not to just accept we don't know, but to suggest that the evidence can be pushed and we can find ways of rereading the evidence and picking up leads which just might add up to a plausible scenario. I don't want to solve the mystery because I think we should be in a position where we don't know everything. Our curiosity is not piqued by closure, it's piqued by an open-ended issue. And the Franklin expedition is the great unknown of the history of exploration. And 
I'd rather it remained like that. That was Andrew Lambert. Andrew's the author of a biography of Franklin, published in the UK as Franklin, Tragic Hero of Polar Navigation, and in the US as The Gates of Hell. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And if after that conversation, you're feeling brave enough to watch The Terror, that's available on BBC iPlayer now. If you enjoyed delving into this mystery, last year we ran a week of episodes on some of history's other great mysteries. Just search for Mysteries in your podcast feed to find those. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Elizabethans. Mm -hmm.